Now I'm finding if I engage in this repetitive behavior, maybe sometimes the obsession starts to decrease. Maybe the intensity of the feelings start to decrease. So now I'm caught in the cycle though, right? Because I have all this intrusive stuff that I don't want. I'm trying to do stuff to make it go away. I could be doing external things like cleaning, washing are the more common stereotypical examples of OCD, but there's uh, internal compulsions also. This could be counting, this could be praying, this could be repeating something and reviewing it in your head. Hello and welcome to ADHD Essentials, part of the ADHD Rewired Podcast Network. I'm your host, Brendan Mahan. I'm a former teacher and mental health clinician turned ADHD coach, trainer, and consultant. I can be reached at brendan at ADHDessentials.com. Here at ADHD Essentials, we help families develop the skills and knowledge needed to better manage attention deficit hyperactivity disorder. Visit ADHDessentials.com for more details. What's up, team? The members of the ADHD Essentials Facebook community are connecting with each other regularly and posting all sorts of useful resources. If that kind of support is something you need right now, consider joining. Go to facebook.com slash groups slash ADHD Essentials community to sign up. The link will be in the show notes. And make it a point to check out the other shows in the ADHD Rewired podcast network. In addition to this one, ADHD Essentials, we also have the flagship ADHD Rewired, where Eric Tivers shares excellent interviews with ADHD experts and adults affected by the disorder, as well as Will Curb sharing practical, actionable tips to help you better manage your ADHD on his show, Hacking Your ADHD. MJ explores the intersection of ADHD and diversity on ADHD Diversified, and our latest show, The ADHD-Friendly Lifestyle, with Moira Maben, where she opens up about her life with late-diagnosis ADHD and discusses how she's reshaped things in order to make it a better fit. Each of these shows is phenomenal, and I'm honored to be counted among them. And if you listen to those shows and enjoy them, if you listen to this show and find meaning in it, please, please, please provide a five-star rating and review on iTunes. They really help others find the show. Finally, a big thank you to Jeffrey Gordon of Ideal Video Strategies for all of the work he did editing this episode. I'm grateful to have him on the team. Welcome to the show. Today, we're talking to Dr. Jeff Szymanski. Jeff is the Executive Director of the International OCD Foundation and author of The Perfectionist Handbook. In today's episode, Jeff tells us about Obsessive Compulsive Disorder, a disorder that is comorbid with ADHD. Jeff talks about what OCD is and isn't, what it's like to live with the disorder, the methods of treatment, many of which are just great anxiety management and self-improvement strategies in general, including self-compassion, why facing adversity and confronting our fears is so important for all of us, and the power of doing hard things. A brief disclaimer prior to this interview, OCD can sometimes be accompanied with some pretty grim thoughts that are diametrically opposed to the values of the person who has the disorder. We do spend a few minutes discussing what that might look like, so this episode is a bit darker than the norm. I know some of you listen to the show as a family. Parents, please preview this one before listening to it with your kids. All right, let's get rolling. 
Yeah, so my name is Jeff Shemansky. I'm currently the uh, executive director of the International OCD Foundation. I'm a clinical psychologist by training. And where I started my career was working with people with chronic suicidality and self-injury. And I found my way over to the OCD Institute at McLean Hospital. It's where I interned at. And I went back about five, six years later and found myself at the OCD Institute as a behavior therapist. This is a residential facility for people with severe OCD. And typically people that were there, it was an adult program, had multiple different uh, conditions. So again, the people that were a little bit more complex and again, had some of the self-injury and suicidality typically were the clients that I worked with. So I started there in 2001. And then in 2008, I uh, took over the foundation. So I've been in the OCD community for about 20 years now. So I'm glad to have you on because OCD is comorbid with ADHD. It's part of that alphabet soup that some of us have going on, but it's not a topic I've explored on the show. So I wanted to get it out there. Can you just start by telling us generally what OCD is and how it works? Yeah, let's start with actually what people think OCD is. And so the way I always start this kind of what is OCD is think about the word obsession or obsessed in the way that we talk about it. I'm obsessed with the color blue. I'm obsessed with this band. I'm obsessed with the Boston Red Sox. That usage of obsessed in in everyday language makes a lot of sense. It is not the same way that we use it when we think about and when we are diagnosing obsessive compulsive disorder. So an obsession in the context of OCD is an intrusive, unwanted, automatic thought, image, impulse that causes distress. Typically it's anxiety, but sometimes it's guilt. Sometimes it's disgust. Sometimes it's just a general sense of, I don't feel right in my body. When we say compulsive, this is again, the Buzzfeed quizzes where doesn't this make your OCD crazy because these three pencils are out of order. That isn't compulsive in the context of OCD. That's compulsive in the context of a personality trait. I compulsively organize my desk. I compulsively rearrange my sock drawer because it makes me feel better, right? So keep in mind when we're talking about obsessions in everyday language, when we're talking about compulsions in everyday language, this is typically how I self-identify. This is something that I like to do. This is my personality or my quirks. A compulsion in the context of OCD is a behavior I engage in in order to get rid of, an attempt to get rid of the obsession, an attempt to get rid of or decrease the anxiety or the other unwanted feelings that show up. So if I have OCD, I'm walking along, I have all these intrusive thoughts, lots of intensity, lots of images. They make me super uncomfortable. They make me very anxious. They can be things like if I do the wrong thing, my parent is going to die. These aren't just random things. These are intense things. Now I'm finding if I engage in this repetitive behavior, maybe sometimes the obsession starts to decrease. Maybe the intensity of the feelings start to decrease. So now I'm caught in a cycle though, right? Because I have all this intrusive stuff that I don't want. I'm trying to do stuff to make it go away. I could be doing external things like cleaning, washing are the more common stereotypical examples of OCD, but there's uh, internal compulsions also. This could be counting, this could be praying, this could be repeating something and reviewing it in your head. Now, what I always say, and again, in the context of OCD, D stands for disorder. This is a psychiatric disorder. This means that you aren't functioning in the way that you would like to be able to function. So 
you're experiencing these obsessions, you're engaged in these compulsive behaviors, you're still in distress, it's super time consuming. These are things you are not wanting to do. These are not your quirks. These are things that you are tortured uh, having to do. Um, it's getting in the way of school. It's getting in the way of relationships. It's getting in the way of work. It's getting in the way of you taking care of yourself. So OCD, things people don't want, incredibly distressing, gets in the way of you living your life in a significant way. The closest I can come for sort of me experiencing the compulsion part, I guess maybe, might be the obsession part is every time I go to New Jersey, my in-laws live in New Jersey and we go to New Jersey. I shouldn't say every time, but often when we go, I'll leave the house and I'll turn the corner. And all of a sudden, some part of my brain is like, you forgot something or you left the stove on, even if I didn't do anything with the stove or like, is the door locked? Right. Like that kind of thing. And I, I have to talk back against that and sort of think like mm, it's fine. And, but sometimes it's strong enough that I'm like, I'm going to go make sure I didn't mess something up. And I turn around and go back and my family's like, what are you doing, Brendan? Come on, dad. But that doesn't, that's like once every two or three months that I'm going to New Jersey. It's not like every time I leave the house, I have this thought. It's typically when I'm going to, it's like, I can't fix it. If I, if I did leave the stove on, it's going to be on for three days. Cause I'm going to be in New Jersey as opposed to it'll be on for like two hours or whatever, while I go grocery shopping. Is that along the lines of what OCD feels like? Am I completely out of left field on this and not understanding at all? So yes and no. So um, it's Passover, right? So if a friend of yours invited you over for a Seder, does that make you Jewish? Yeah, I'm not pretending I have OCD. I realize I don't. But this is really important to talk about because people do misuse it in the way that you just described it, is we all have the experience of, oh, shoot, did I forget to do that? In the experience of COVID, wash your hands. Am I washing my hands for 20 seconds? That kind of extra attention on, am I doing it the right way? Am I safe? We all do that all the time. This is, you know, your family sitting in the car for three hours while you're going back and repeatedly checking the locks. Okay. Now we're in OCD land, not normal. Like, Ooh, I just want to be extra careful here. Some part of my brain is like, did I, did I check that? Everyone goes back and checks their car. How many people do you see in the parking lot? Myself included. They're halfway to the store and then they turn around and they have to click the clicker and make sure they hear their car beep. Yep. Just make sure it locked. We, everybody does that. Again, that's why I always emphasize disorder. So even if your behavior looks like the disorder is, it is incredibly intense and it is really interfering in your life. This is some parallels with ADHD, right? Where mm -hmm. ADHD challenges are kind of the typical challenges of being an adult human, right? Like, Mm -hmm. Did you reply to all the emails you had to reply to today? Are you nailing your schedule in a way that you're not double booking yourself? Are you organized enough in your home? With ADHD, all of that stuff is turned up to 11, right? It's not like things are a little bit disorganized. It's you can't find the evidence that you paid your taxes last year, to use a personal example. Yeah. Um, <laughs> It's that next level of disorganization, that next level of failing to start and initiate the task. It's actually causing problems in your life. Yep. OCD is the same idea, right? It, it's, yeah, it bothers you that those pencils are out of line, but you can kind of go, oh, that bothers me and walk away. Or you can nudge the pencils down a little bit and walk away. OCD, if those pencils are bothering you, 
you're spending the next half an hour to 45 minutes making sure that those pencils are at a right angle and they're all lined up correctly and every word is sort of sticking up in the same way in terms of printing on the pencils and that kind of stuff. Is that a better understanding? Yes. And, and, and it's, again, I'm just going to go back to, it's really, really important to, to talk this through, right? I'm sure people have said to you, when you say I have ADHD, they're like, oh, I have a little ADHD too. You're like, no, you actually don't dude. Like you don't know what it's like in my head. We aren't a little psychiatrically impaired. We all have challenges in life. We all have, you know, we're on our game, we're off our game, but to say I'm a little mentally ill is not super helpful. And what it does is it diminishes it, right? Because if I'm a little ADHD, then Brendan, you aren't really that ADHD. So knock it off. Right. Just pull yourself up by your bootstraps, concentrate better, try harder. Like, wait a minute, my brain isn't working like yours. That's not fair. Yeah. Just because I coughed once this week doesn't mean I have pneumonia. Exactly. Exactly. Okay. Awesome. So where do we go next? How do we help the audience understand OCD as well as we can. And, and one of the things I'm hoping to do with this episode is those parents who are affected by OCD, those folks listening who just know people who are affected by OCD, I want to help them get some compassion, some empathy, some understanding for what it's like to be the person who has OCD and what they're experiencing, that distress, that torture that you've mentioned. Yeah. So let's talk, let's jump into causes and then jump into subtypes, because I think that will address a little bit of what you're talking about. So what are the causes of OCD? Like pretty much every psychiatric illness, they don't really know. They think it's some combination of genetics. Um, They're finding that about one in four kids, if you have a parent with OCD, about one in four kids develops OCD. So there is a, there is a genetic component to that. You know, again, it doesn't mean that's how you were built originally. You weren't destined to develop OCD. There are different things that are going to make it more or less likely. Some of that are stressors. It could be transitions. It could be the environment. If you have a parent who, who's not on top of their OCD symptoms, that could exacerbate the likely that, likelihood that you develop OCD symptoms. But again, we know, as we know, when the, the brains of people with ADHD, your brain isn't working the same as people without uh, ADHD. It's the same case with OCD. We see a circuit uh, in, in our emotional processing center for individuals with OCD that is not working correctly. It's hyperactive. It's seeing problems where there aren't problems. And it's telling you you're in danger in all kinds of ways that you may not be in danger. So we have genetics, we have neurobiology. We have, again, environmental factors, learning factors. So again, you know, when you, some of the ways people used to think about OCD, thank God, more than a few decades ago now is, again, poor parenting or some root trauma, or if we can get to the bottom of this. And that really isn't, that's the case in some other psychiatric disorders. It's not the case in OCD. There's really not a root cause. There are are reasons people develop OCD, but if you use traditional talk therapy, I've worked with people who were in traditional talk therapy for 20 years and didn't get any better. Um, and we'll talk about what the treatment looks like and how people actually get better with OCD. But so again, this is your brain actually isn't working the way other people's are. And so it's not fair to say, just stop being so anxious. Just don't worry about that. Just get over it. It is not a fair uh, request to make of someone. So, so again, examples again of the types of symptoms that people get with OCD, the most common are, I'm going to get uh, a disease from germs. I have to wash my house, house. I have to wash my hands. I have to shower excessively. 
um, in order to keep myself safe? Am I going to die? Am I going to get sick? Am I going to suffer? Am I going to pass on what I have to someone else? And again, I think all of us didn't experience a version of OCD, but we experienced the thought process of, did I wash my hands thoroughly enough? Am I safe? Am I putting my family members at risk in the way that you just described? Like that's up to, you know, volume 11 for people with OCD. And it was stressful enough for those of us without OCD mm-hmm. to be living through COVID. So again, the cleanliness uh, and, and washing. And then in the way that you're talking about, if I'm not careful enough, I'm go- going to cause harm. And so am I going to burn down the house if I leave the doors unlocked? Is a robber going to come in and kill us all? Um, so lots of checking. If I don't, if I didn't lock my car, is someone going to steal my car? So lots of checking and repeating. Uh, then we have people with a perfectionism subtype. This is, these are the folks that are, I, you know, I worked with a, with a young woman and she was, I think, a senior in high school and she had to write a final paper and she'd already read 12 books on the topic. Wow. And she hadn't even begun writing anything. So again, this need to do everything, to excel, to be perfect, to not make mistakes, uh, again, to have everything ordered and symmetrical and look right and feel right, again, very time consuming. Then you have folks where their OCD symptoms actually invade their faith-based practice. And so you have, for example, someone who's Catholic, who's calling their uh, priest at two o'clock in the morning to confess because they may have engaged in a sin that they're taking religious practice beyond the level of anyone else in their faith-based community, and that their relationship with God has turned into something that is fear-based rather than connecting and loving. Uh, You then have folks that have intrusive violent and sexual thoughts. So violent thoughts, um, I always describe the um, Woody Allen movie where Christopher Walken is kind of in this very creepy way talking about how when it's, you know, you're driving on the highway and the headlights from the other side of the highway are coming uh, at you on the other side of the highway. And you have this, this urge to want to turn into the, the headlights. And everyone has this kind of weird, like you have a, a knife and you think, what if I just lost control and just stab my spouse right now? No one wants to do that. No one's interested in doing that. But again, you have these thoughts. The rest of us have these thoughts. We go, oh, that's so weird. My mind went in that direction. For people with OCD, they start to go, oh my God. If I had that thought, what if that means I'm going to do it? If I have it again, does it increase the likelihood? Ooh, wait a minute, if I'm having it again and now I'm having a sensation associated with it, what happens if I harm a family member? What happens if I walk by a kid and I have this idea that I wanna inappropriately touch the kid? I don't wanna inappropriately touch kids. Why am I thinking about this? So they start to get worried about, oh my God, am I a pedophile? Am I a rapist? Am I a serial killer? So again, these are horrific thoughts that people are having. And so they go to extra lengths to make sure I am not going to be that person. So that could be anything from asking reassurance from family members to spending lots of time online, kind of looking things up. It might be that they hit a bump in a road um, when they were driving and now they're at home and, and they're calling the police station. Was anyone accidentally run over? Did I just kill someone by accident? So again, what's really torturous about this disorder is this recognition that, oh, that thought is crazy. That doesn't make any sense. And yet I have so much anxiety about it. Let me just do something to see if I can get rid of this thought and get rid of this anxiety. And then they get caught in that cycle. It sounds like their thoughts are almost going to the thing that is the most diametrically opposed to who they are. 
like the thing that would be the most sort of disturbing for them. And they're worrying about that because it's so far from their self-identity maybe. And then they're getting stuck in, in this loop of, well, if I thought about it, does that mean that it really is a part of me and I'm not as good as I think that I am because I thought about stabbing a baby and now I'm off to the races obsessively thinking about stabbing a baby because that doing that is so offensive to me that I sort of out of anxiety or fear thought about it. Am I remotely close? No, uh, absolutely. So there's a, there's a psychologist um, who wrote a book called Imp of the Mind, and I recommend that to lots of people. And it talks about all of these violent sexual blasphemous thoughts that people have. And he, his experience, and I think most people that treat OCD, when you talk with a lot of people with OCD, it's not everyone, but it catches, you hear it enough times where you're like, there is something about this theory that it goes after the thing that you care about most. If you are a very religious person, your OCD likely, not always, likely is going to attack that. We do know um, that for some women, for example, they have perinatal OCD. So you've heard of postpartum depression. Perinatal means the OCD could start when they get pregnant. It could be exacerbated once they give birth. It could happen kind of anywhere around uh, birth. It also affects men. So we worked with men who you know, they are holding their newborn baby and they're like, oh my God, what if I suffocate it by accident? What if I drown him while I'm bathing him by accident? Um, and so it's worth thinking the estimates is that it might be as common as postpartum depression, but because people are afraid to talk about it, right? And we've heard horror stories of a new mother saying, doctor, I've ha I'm having all these weird thoughts about my baby and they take the baby away uh, because they don't, because physicians aren't as aware of perinatal OCD as they are uh, uh, around perinatal depression. I met a woman who experienced that. It's awful. Yeah. It, it, the stuff she was telling me, she didn't do anything, but the kinds of thoughts she was having, I can totally understand why that would be such a disturbing experience. And luckily it, it faded for her. It, she, at some point that ended, um, which is not the case for OCD in general. Am I right about that? Yeah. So for most people, if you don't get treatment, your course of OCD gets worse over your lifetime. And uh, there are some people that say, you know, I, I had it when I was a kid and it was pretty, you know, mild to moderate. And then for whatever reason, it, it didn't bother me in, in late adolescence or early, early adulthood. But what we hear from most people most of the time is once you develop OCD, it's, oh, even with good treatment, there's always going to be background noise. So a lot of our advocates who have been in treatment for a long time are like, I had OCD. I still have OCD. It just doesn't run my life. It's, it's again, just kind of a stereo in the background that it's, it's th throwing these kinds of thoughts and images and I'm just not getting caught in them anymore. They're doing what everyone else does. Like, oh, that's a weird thought. And let me just move on with my day. But yeah, getting proper treatment is very important. There are unfortunately lots of obstacles to getting treatment. One is just the shame and embarrassment of people recognizing they have these thoughts uh, and, and being too afraid to tell anyone. There's a lot of isolation, shame, and hiding associated with OCD. Then there's you know people that don't even know what it is. They don't know that OCD is what they're experiencing. And so these kinds of podcasts can be helpful because... I've heard a lot of times I've done some, something in media and people come back and they're like, I diagnosed myself by listening to you in that media interview. Uh, the other barriers are you go to a, a therapist and they actually don't know how to treat OCD, let alone diagnose OCD. There are estimates, some research estimates that 
about one third of mental health professionals are misdiagnosing OCD as something else. That happens with ADHD too. So I totally buy it. All the time. Exactly. And so, you know, finding the right specialist who can diagnose it properly, who can, you know, deliver the treatment, you have to have specialized training. Uh, It's called exposure response prevention therapy. So you have to go through specialized training to know how to do this. Uh, Exposure response response prevention therapy, uh, kind of nicknamed ERP, very effective treatment, um, but it has to be done well. Uh, and it's a difficult treatment to do. So the way I kind of describe it to folks that that don't experience OCD is everyone has a simple phobia, right? You either are afraid of spiders or snakes or dogs or flying. How do you get over that anxiety? You have to get in contact with that thing that makes you anxious. Why? Because you are your brain is saying, hey, look, this could be a dangerous thing. You could be in trouble. You could be harmed. And the only way And this is why you go back to talk therapy doesn't really help OCD much because the only way to retrain your brain that this in fact is not as dangerous as your brain thinks it is, is you have to go and interact with it. So I'm a brown belt in Kempo and I have been for way too long for various reasons. But one of the things in Kempo when you're sparring, when you're doing techniques is you have to go against your impulses, right? Like your impulse is to kind of cover your head, turn away, that kind of stuff. And that's just going to get you hit harder. Because if you turn away, you don't see what's happening. Yep. You've got to stay in the fight. You've got to be looking at the person who's throwing arms and legs at you so that you know what's going on. And I, uh, I left part of why I've been a brown belt forever. Longest brown belt in my dojo is I, I stopped training to get a master's degree and start a business, which seems like a legitimate reason. And I came back and like when I left, I would. I had a lot of decorum. I would stand there all day and you can hit me as hard as you want and I'll kind of be okay with it. I came back and I was flinching and turtling and not, not okay. Couldn't handle it anymore. And even the physical impact of getting hit like threw me off. And no sooner did I start to get that back than COVID hit. And I haven't been in those one-on-one in-person physical confrontation type things for over a year now. So I'm sure I'm back to being flinchy again. And it sounds like that's kind of a metaphor for what you're talking about, where in order to, to navigate OCD, you kind of have to be confronting and, and in the fight to lo- use that term loosely with whatever it is that is causing you that discomfort and that torture of, is the door locked? Are my hands clean enough? That kind of thing. Am I, am I drawing the right parallels here? Yeah, it it is 100% the right parallel. The one thing I say about it, you know, there is value in the fight metaphor, because again, there's this kind of, you have to build up the momentum and the motivation to want to do this. Like who wants to do it? It's like, you know, a version of going to the gym, like who the hell wants to go to the gym? It's, it sucks. Who the hell wants to get punched in the face? Yeah. So, so that kind of get that momentum, you know, again, when I encourage people to do exposure therapy, though, it's more about like, in the way that you're saying, like, pay attention, instead of turning away, look and see what's going on. How are they standing? How are they swinging? Where are they coming from? If they hit you, what does it actually feel like? Like, get really curious, because the problem with anxiety, when you cope with it through avoidance is, it, is you turn it into a bigger and bigger monster and it's a bigger and bigger boogeyman. And it really is going and opening the closet door and really going, what is actually in here? And that is the first step. And again, it's less about like, I need to go in and punch the boogeyman. It's more like, is he really even a boogeyman? Did my mind just get away from me 
And is this really what I think it is? And, and some, there's sometimes I've not had to do exposure therapy with people for some symptoms because we talk about it and they're like, oh, wow, it really, those really are just thoughts. I can really just treat my thoughts as thoughts. They don't have to mean anything. And for some people that like gets them halfway to the, the gate. Yeah, I, w- I wasn't going that the fight metaphor is perfect. Like I recognize that there's some limitations to it, but even, even with what you just said in terms of finding out what it really means, right? One of the things that improved me most as a Kempo practitioner was having my sensei demonstrate techniques on me because mm-hmm. he would, I'm just giving him my body and he's like, this is how you do this technique and I'm supposed to fall down and get hit and whatever. I got to the point where I was literally counting how many times he hit me and like could come stand back up and be like, you hit me here, 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 and here. And that helped me push through a lot of my fear around ever being hit because he wasn't hitting me as hard as he could, but he also wasn't exactly pulling it, you know, like it was somewhere in the middle and having been exposed to that and also realizing he was gradually, he was hitting me harder and harder and harder the further into my practice I went taught me that I didn't really have to worry about that stuff as much, that it, it, it is a thing that I can handle. It's something I can absorb. And the other piece is I didn't just learn that mentally. I kind of learned that physically, like my body just got used to being mm-hmm. knocked around a little bit. That's the idea behind the exposure therapy. Am I right? That you sort of like, the more you expose yourself to challenging situations, the more acclimated you become to being uncomfortable. Yeah. So the idea is that anything that's novel is going to be intense. The more you approach it, the more you learn about it, the more you immerse yourself in it, the more you get to know it, all the volume turns down on it. In the way that you're saying, not just how you think about it, but your actual brain, your physiology gets used to it. If you jump into, I just got out of the pool, I went swimming. You jump into the pool. The first thing you notice when you jump into a pool is how damn cold it is. On your second lap, you aren't even thinking of the temperature of the pool anymore. Like you just, in the way that you say, you acclimate, your body gets used to it. And you start to, again, when it becomes a known thing, then it becomes something that you can wrap your head around. So the way that you're describing it, and again, I like the fight part of the metaphor, because again, I think that it requires some energy, but the state of mind when you're doing exposure therapy is a little bit of what you were talking about. We call it mindfulness training. And this comes out of meditation and Buddhism and it's been Westernized and really kind of, it's a psychological uh, treatment now. And so we use mindfulness training in exposure therapy for you to stay awake, for you to confront, to look it in the eye, to stay present, to really say world, teach me something new and different because my mind is telling me something else. And so, you know, again, we call this tracking instead of listening to what my mind's telling me, what's the world actually telling me? How is the world punishing me or reinforcing me? How is it encouraging me or telling me what's actually dangerous and what's safe? But again, it's through experiencing the world, not through playing it out in our mind. So in terms of therapy, the exposure therapy sounds like it's the Cadillac. It's the way to go. It's the Cadillac, you know, uh, so the other, we call them first line treatments, meaning here's where you start because it it has the most research. It's the most effective. So exposure response prevention is the Cadillac. It has the most research. It's the most effective. There are difficulties with it though. You have to find someone who's well-trained in it. You have to have a lot of motivation to want to face your fears and, and to do this treatment. It is not something that can get done to you. It's something that you have to actively engage in. You know, think about 
one of your worst fears. Who the heck wants to go and just be anxious? Like it, it's a very difficult treatment to stay engaged in, but it's very effective. And once you learn it, once you get the basics of it, it's again, in the same way that you're talking about Kempo, the more you do it, the more proficient you get at it. And even if you move away from it for a while, you go, oh, I actually know how to do this. Like after COVID, you get back into your lessons and you'll be like, oh, I remember this. It'll take you a little bit. But so it's a skill. ERP is a skill that once you learn approach and mindfulness and, and uh, exposure, that's always something that's in your back pocket. But another first line uh, treatment is medication. So they're called selective serotonin reuptake inhibitors. That's just a fancy way of saying it's just adjusting some of the chemicals in your brain, that, the, that there might be too much or too little of something going on in your brain. Uh, they're common in, in treatment of uh, depression, but for some people, uh, people have said, and, and research has shown that, that taking medication can be helpful, either in turning down the volume of the accessions or decreasing the urge to engage in the compulsions. For some people, they take uh, medication and allows them to engage in exposure therapy more uh, effectively and more fully, and then they can cycle off it over time. Some people are on it for many years. Some people go on it for a period of time and go off. Some people use it in conjunction with ERP. Typically, again, the more severe your OCD is, the more we encourage kind of doing more than one thing. So it might be doing ERP and also medication, but also we're finding the more you involve family, the more, the more effective your treatment can be. Your family members might have gotten caught up in your OCD symptoms. They might be, you know, answering a question over and over again. You're like, that's kind of annoying. And I don't think I'm supposed to be doing this, but he's in so much distress. I'm just going to answer that question again for the 50th time, not knowing that in fact, that is perpetuating the cycle where the kid is asking for reassurance. That's a compulsion. And again, you've unwittingly kind of gotten sucked in. So really teaching, we call it family accommodating behaviors, teaching parents how to support your kid in distress without perpetuating the OCD cycle. Can you give an example or two of what that would look like in case there's folks listening who are in that position? Prior to COVID, it would be letting your kids stay home from school um, because they were too anxious to go rather than what is anxious about being at school? Let me help you. Are your OCD symptoms bad there? Can we talk to the teacher? Can we get you a therapist? Can we get your therapist talking to the teacher? Are there ways where we can get you more functional in school rather than I'm going to help you avoid and we just aren't going to send you to school because it's too anxiety provoking? It could be I, I need to do this perfect, my homework perfectly. So the parent is doing homework for the kid because the kid is otherwise too distressed. It could be, again, making accommodations where you know, they're stuck in the bathroom doing ritualistic washing and everyone's sitting in the car waiting for them. And we're like, we were supposed to go to dinner like 20 minutes ago. Where are you at? Well, just let me finish this. All right, well, we'll give you another five minutes rather than saying, nope, I'm turning off the water, closing the door, get in the car, and you're going to have to work on this with your therapist. So again, really identifying all the ways in which the OCD symptoms have modified otherwise normal routines in the house. And that's got to be extra tricky with COVID when mm -hmm. you can't, there's no scenario where you're going to get a break from, you, you stop your kid from washing their hands, they escalate. And now how long are they going to stay escalated? And they're not going off to school. You're not, you're not even changing your setting to go out to dinner. You're just at home with a kid who's really upset and distressed because three minutes was enough time to wash your hands. Exactly. So why it's important for the parent to be involved in treatment, right? Historically, 
uh, individual therapy was, we're going to protect your confidentiality. This is between you and me. This is private. Well, when your symptoms have now leaked all over your family and they're doing their best to be compassionate and supportive, but they're in fact part of the problem and perpetuating OCD symptoms. And I'm teaching you exposure therapy, but you're going home. Your parents are in distress. They're undermining the exposure therapy. We got to get the parents in the treatment. And so it is much more common, particularly with kids, but even with adults, um, where family members, spouses, kids, adult uh, parents are in session. How can I be compassionate and supportive without perpetuating this? It's got to be challenging as a clinician because, and I use this sort of facetiously and sort of not facetiously. Almost your job is to be a torturer. Like you're saying to this kid, this thing that brings you comfort is helping you in the short term, but damaging you in the long term. And so I'm going to like set up a plan that will be enacted in conjunction with your parents that will prevent you from washing your hands for 20 minutes. You only get five minutes to wash them or whatever that is. And you're kind of intentionally causing distress knowing that in the long term, it'll become better. I guess with kids specifically, like how do you keep clients? It seems like they just bounce. So that's pros and cons of different kinds of treatment. And that is part of the problem with ERP is compliance. And when you have a, let's go back to your sensei uh, example, he wasn't just beating the crap out of you to beat the crap out of you, right? Right. He was inflicting pain for a reason. And again, you know, in ERP, it's you never make anyone do anything. You say, look, if you want to get better, if you want to lose weight, you can't sit on the couch and eat pizza all day. You're going to have to change your eating habits. You're going to have to get on the treadmill. So it's the same concept. Like it does sound like a torture chamber, but at the end of the day, it's you're a coach. And you're like, look, here is the path that will get you well. Choose it or don't choose it. Like if someone doesn't do ERP or they're like, I didn't do my homework this week. That's like, I'm fine. I don't have OCD. You're the one in distress. I will never tell you you have to do this. You came to me and said, I'm in distress. I want my life to look different. I have a recipe for you and it's hard. It's like getting kicked in the head a bunch of times. But at the end of the day, you will live a better life. You will live a more symptom-free life. It is worth it. That's a really awesome metaphor. Because as a guy who has definitely gained the COVID-19 and needs to lose them, I'm finding it really hard. And, and there have been other times in my life where I gained weight and I could kind of flick a switch and be like, I'm just going to eat salads and I'm going to skip breakfast because that's one meal less calories. Some people call it intermittent, fa intermittent fasting. I'm more along the lines of like, it's just one less meal. And I am trying really hard to flip that switch and it's just not working. My executive functions are so drained from the daily grind of COVID mm -hmm. that I'm having trouble bringing the willpower that I need to avoid having a glass of milk in the morning, like let alone there's a birthday cake on the counter and I could eat that. How is COVID affecting OCD treatment? Yeah. I mean, a couple of things about that. Let's talk a little bit about kind of the, the experience you're having that I think everyone's having. And, you know, there's a, a concept moving more into a OCD treatment that is about self-compassion and about know your limits, know when it's time to push on yourself and know when it's time to engage in better self-care. And so in the era of COVID is not the best time to do self-improvement. It is about treading water and keeping your head above water. And when we get out of this, then absolutely go back and put your, your foot on the, on the pedal. But right now, 
be kind to yourself. I do think, you know, we've seen a, a kind of two different responses in the OC community to COVID. One, obviously the people with contamination fears for the most part, if it were germ-based, so again, COVID had to really tap into your, your existing OCD symptoms for you to have had a really strong response. If it didn't, you know, I heard tons of therapists say, my clients are coming in the office and they're like, yeah, COVID, but look, I have all these crazy thoughts about killing my parents. I want to focus on that. And, and again, it was like, that isn't making me anxious. My OCD is making me anxious. And so a lot of people with OCD either were, I have bigger fish to fry than COVID, or they had been in good treatment for a while. And the core of exposure treatment is learn to move forward, even though you're anxious, learn to move forward, even though you're uncertain. And so it is really like a couple of people in my community wrote a blog about how they have a black belt in uh, living with uncertainty. They actually use that phrase. They're like, that is exactly what exposure therapy is. I don't know what's going to happen, but I'm going to keep moving through my life. Just being mindful of time. Do you have any ending essentials that you'd like to share with our audience? Yeah. So one of the big things I talked about earlier is kind of the sense of isolation and uh, disconnection and shame. And I think a big part of people's treatment and recovery is finding a community. And that's really a large part of what the International OCD Foundation does that, that I run. We provide trainings for getting therapists to be competent in treating people with OCD um, but we also provide lots of communities, um, ways to connect with other people, to share with other people what their symptoms are, what their journey is, what their treatment's like. So we have a resource directory where you can find well-trained therapists, you can find support groups. We run events like we do a walk every year that's held around the country with our affiliates. We run an in-person conference, not this year, but next year. We run a virtual conference. Um, we'll be doing that in, uh, in October. Um, and it's, again, uh, at our events, it, it's always people with lived experience of all ages. It's family members, it's therapists, and it's researchers. So anytime you come to an event, you're going to learn from all of those different perspectives. And everyone is super generous. And again, it's a great community. Uh, go to the iocdf.org and find out all the ways in which you can plug in and get connected into a community of people who get it and understand it and can be helpful on your journey so that you're not doing this by yourself. Hey, you're still here. Nice. Thanks for staying focused all the way through. If you have any thoughts or questions about today's episode, feel free to email me at brendan at ADHDessentials.com. And don't forget to check out the website, ADHDessentials.com, and visit our Facebook community. I'm looking forward to talking to you again next week. In the meantime, keep focusing on improvement over perfection. 10% better is all you need.